Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on the right side. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. He is back yet again, assuming I don't do something to destroy this audio as well as the last one. I hope you've had a good time over the week since we last had the chance to talk. And we are here again on a wonderful Sunday, which I'm sure you're all enjoying looking at out of the windows of your house, which you aren't leaving due to the fear of the imminent death. Well, thanks for that cheery introduction there, Gary. Yes, it's a beautiful spring day. The cherry blossoms are out, the daffodong dillies. I see the beginnings, possibly even, of the rosy dendrums, the crocuses, and the, the baby tulips are starting to spring up. So it's a, it's lovely, lovely out there. Yes, but it's not all positive, Michael. The economy. No, no, it's not all good news, Gary. I, I will give you that. The economy has been, I, I think... Soundly getting the shit kicked out of it would probably be the way to uh, describe it. I mean, the unemployment rate basically doubled in four days. I don't know what bouncers are like these days, but back in my youth, the bouncer's approach to the more vigorous and more obstreperous member on, on the Lens Fair was very vigorous. And I would say the Irish economy today is much like a rather drunk member uh, of the public at a rural disco somewhere in the eighties, where the bouncers are wearing un- are wearing divers boots, so they can give the you know for that little bit of weight, so they can give an extra good kicking. I mean, and also we have to look. It's it's not just bad for everyone. There's a gender bias here. It's much worse for men than it is for women. Well, at least that, Gary, because I mean, I don't know if I could have taken it really if yet again something had come and was being more heavily weighted towards the oppression and exploitation of women in this case. I think, you know, I think, I think a lot of men out there will be relieved and glad, happy to take up that little extra bit of the burden. I mean, it is hard, though, because, I mean, for every, what, 84 cent a woman loses, a man is losing a dollar. That's true. That is true. The, the lost economic opportunities. And that's what we always forget is not so much the stuff... That happens. It's the stuff that doesn't happen, Gary, in any economy. Any economy, and that really is where the story goes. I was going to say, if we can be boring and tedious for a moment, I'm sure any listener of this podcast would knows that we can be boring and tedious for hours and hours. I mean, at this point, several hundred hours. Yeah, indeed. An unkind person would say. Yeah, well, unkind, truthful, accurate. Anyway, the fact is, we're hearing an awful lot of talk and different places about what was the correct, I mean, leaving aside the correct response at a kind of an organizational, at an epidemiological level, but what is the correct response to try to mitigate the very worst effects of the economy to this issue? And I think a lot of people, I mean, we we saw one floppy-haired economist, I think, advocating that everybody just have a thousand quid or 1,500 quid just straight into their bank accounts. Now, Gary, I can tell you, Somebody putting 1,500 quid into my bank account right now, I would regard as a very sensible and positive thing. Other people's bank accounts, yeah, I could care, frankly, a bit less. But I think that they're wrong. At least they're wrong right now, or they're wrong to prioritize that. But I, there's a sense that people are treating this or look considering this as your, your classic demand-side recession, where the problem in most vast majority of recessions in normal times is when demand collapses, when people stop buying stuff. Now, to be honest with you, 
there's always, a, I mean, you, you you rarely have anything which is a pure and simple in economics. But what we're looking at here is an art, well, artificially, naturally, a naturally created situation where the problem is supply. Where because it's not an accident of policy, it's a deliberate part of the policy, is that we have to actually reduce economic activity. Because economic activity is one of the ways in which this spreads. And in fact, Global economic activity and trade and whatever is one of the principal reasons why it's spread across the, the world so quickly and so effectively, because we are so integrated in our economic activities. Anyway, <clears throat> what the government has to start to look at really here is how you maintain the basic structures of those businesses that are perfectly normal, per- doing perfectly well and healthy, but have to means we have to kind find a way of maintaining them and mothballing them. It's not simply a question that economies aren't simply just an aggregate of individual businesses. And businesses, even successful businesses, are not simply the meeting of, an, of, of a good product with good marketing and good sales. There's a relationship. There's the human, the element of human capital. And that's one of the problems, the that synergistic, synchronous mixing of human capital and good ideas in, in a place. The institutional memory, all of those things that go into making a company a successful company that can be potentially lost. We have to try and keep the basic infrastructure of the economy alive. And that's what we need to be looking at. And that's what the government has to direct, rather than to try and find ways to support demand. We ha- There is demand in the economy. Anybody selling sliced pans could tell that. And I think the problem with the idea of sending a thousand quid into everybody's bank account is that it, it's just too it's odd. It, it, that will support people who make bread, tins of beans, tins of, tins of salmon, tuna, and whatever, but not. it's not going to, say, help a very successful guy, manufacturer of radiators or solar panels. Yes, but on the other hand, Michael, this is one of David McWilliams' ideas. Yes. So even if I had agreed with what he was suggestion, suggesting... The fact he had suggested it would make me immediately unsure about that. <laughs> the source would poison the idea, would it? I mean, I would have to do a thorough re-evaluation of it to see what had gone wrong with it. Right. Um, because I would suspect there would have been something that's gone horribly wrong with it. I, I mean, Dave McWilliams gets a lot of play for being eventually right about the uh, recession. The last recession. It's very eventually, very, very eventually. Yeah, I, I think that's the important fact that we people tend to forget. He had predicted, you know, maybe 20 of the past one recessions, and he got there eventually. And that's the joy of cyclical economies. You're going to get there eventually. Also, if you're an economist and you're in the business of making predictions and commenting, you, you, there's a certain, there's a usefulness as well in being slightly delphic in the way you talk about the future so that you, you you leave a little bit of leeway that you can always go back and inter- well it was obvious what I was saying you just didn't understand me at the time I would I, I would also say this is a man who if you go onto his personal website and go to the section where he describes himself mm-hmm. he mentions that in 2016 he was deemed the most influential Twitter user in Ireland in 2016 what he doesn't mention, glorious title. What he doesn't mention is what academic qualifications he actually has in economics. I believe he has a master's. He is apparently also the adjunct professor of global 
economics at the School of Business in Trinity College, Dublin. Really? Mm. He's the adjunct professor. Mm-hmm. And he's a master's. Mm-hmm. Well, he must have done a lot of very brilliant independent research. doing. He hasn't, no. No, I think you're just not finding it, Gary. You look at, he must have done some novel, interesting research. Because some books. Which books are you talking about? The books that were on the shelves? Four bestsellers, Michael. Doesn't say what they're about. Just says they were bestsellers. The ones what I saw in Essence. And he also says that he uses new ways to explain our economic world. For example, punk economics. And uh, a new venture with the Financial Times, which deploys cartoons to make economics digestible to normal Non-nerdy punters. Oh, sweet Jesus. I remember the, 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 there's a very beautiful prayer composed, I believe, by the mother of Hugh Leonard, the late Irish playwright. It, was, it went like this. God between us and all gobshites. That's the prayer that I pray. However, he is a successful gobshite. Oh, we have very, to, very, very. We have to allow that. He is a very successful academic and public intellectual, would we describe Public intellectual more than academic. Regardless of his positions, yes, 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 yes. The only, the only economist I'm going to give kudos to for predicting it is the great, is the great one, the Morgan Kelly, who, who did it and not, and did it in such as forensic uh, clarity, it was scary, and did it, 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 and this was one of those occasions when you know it's like. You, Listener may maybe were in the olden days in Greece and Rome. People go to an oracle, and I said earlier Delphi. You would refer to the oracle of Delphi, and the the thing about the oracle of Delphi or any of the great oracles, uh, you, there was a cave, and some they live in caves, and they get high in fumes and stuff, and they would give the but they, it was all garbled nonsense, uh, so it was always terribly obtuse. He, he his analysis was not Delphi. His was short, plain Anglo-Saxon sentences. And it was terrifically prescient. If our listener isn't sure who uh, Morgan Kelly is, he's a professor of economics at uh, UCD. He's also the person that Barry Heron was talking about when he said that um, people talking down the country should consider suicide. Yeah, he was. And the most incredible, I still remember the day that our article came out. And I was on the phone all day fielding chats and questions about talking about this article and could possibly announce. And I, I said, no, absolutely not. It's not, no, it's just, you know, just notice an article. And I said, well, it could be right. And I then described the circumstances, well, in theory, if this was blah, blah. And I basically described every single thing that happened from Citibank and Morgan Stanley and all the stuff that happened in the Lehman Brothers, blah, blah. And it was horrible. But anyway, he, uh, he described it. And the, the most incredible thing was he said afterwards that he just Googled stuff for three hours. Absolutely nothing in the article was based on deep analysis of or the use of credible algorithms with a high-powered computer and just a staff of research students. Just go on the go on the internet, Google stuff for a few hours, and wrote an article. Speaking of something that uh, no oracle could have foreseen, the Irish Prison Service has been releasing uh, prisoners, non-violent offenders, you know, decent ordinary criminals, basically theft, car, auto theft. Burglary, which I always find a bit weird when they put in with non-violent crime, because I think of burglary as actually quite a violent crime, it certainly even if is, no yes. one is hurt. It certainly is if you happen to be in the house when it, when it goes on. No, but I think even no one is in the house, burglary should be classed as a violent crime because of 
one, the sanctity of the home, but also the increased risk of actual violence occurring. Yes. Because if you are home, not really anywhere you can go. Absolutely. And, and you're, you're, uh, as you, Unless you have a second home. And you're quite rightly said, because I, I know my next door neighbour here is an elderly lady. Great, great, wonderful neighbour. And her home was broken into she was burgled some time ago. And I think it took her years, and I, I genuinely mean three, four years, before she started to feel reasonably safe and comfortable in her home. It, she, and it was an awful thing to think of that, you know, in, in your autumn years, as it were. And she was there, and she was happy as Larry in her small little, her little house, in comfortable nest. And her, her peace was shattered. Her peace of mind her comfort in the place where you should be most able to be gone was absolutely destroyed. And it really brought home, it's, burglary is not about, you know, the value of the items that they take. It's about the destruction of the basic, your sense of your home, of your house as your home and your peace. It's about destroying the totally illusionary uh, view that you're in control and safe there. And that's an illusion that we have to have to be able to live in the world. True. I mean, if people don't believe in that, they could go around not believing in other things, important things, important but not true things, like ideas like, uh, you know, truth and justice and equality and all of that nonsense. Beauty. Beauty. And you can't have that. Kind of people around not thinking that those things are real. I mean, that's why we lie to children about Santa Claus. I never lie to children about Santa Claus. Well, you are a monster, Michael. I never. I, you, these people say he lives in the Lapland. I have no, no, no. We don't know where Santa Claus lives. And I think that it's ridiculous to go through. It's just feeding. It's feeding the Lapland tourism people. And there's obviously corruption going on there. There's money being exchanged hands that they've managed to get this notion of Sa- Santa, no, Santa, Claus. Santa Claus. Santa Claus, I think, to me, falls into the acceptable lie category in that it's not so openly ridiculous that you know, it's, it just should be, it should be totally uh, refuted even if a child asks you about it. Like human rights and human <laughs> rights law. Nonsense, Michael. Nonsense on stilts. Yeah, I'm sure. I was waiting for Bentham. That's what, that was the part of my, uh, I did my master's in international relations. And I really enjoyed the international law because you get to a point where, like, but none of this is backed by force, is it? So really, none of this matters unless the country you're applying it to lets you do it. Wait, international. And they were like, no, no, no I mean, they're universal. Like, but are they, though? I mean, you can't say they're universal just because you throw away some tin-pot African dictator every ten years. Most international law isn't law as we understand it in the same sense as national law. It's like I, 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 was reading, I was reading a submission by the Irish Council for Human Liberty, or Civil Liberties, uh, recently. And they've taken a very strong stance uh, against some of the government proposals, Michael. Have they? They think that they could be a, a terrible infringement of the right to assembly and the right to uh, free speech, which I found particularly interesting because the organisation supports both exclusion zones for peaceful protests uh, outside anywhere an abortion may be carried out, and they support hate speech. So uh, nice. They, they've done a nice pivot on that. But I love reading their stuff because yeah, they just I keep saying they... things like international human rights obligations and every time I hear the phrase, there's just a little bit of an internal, ah. It's a bit like, you remember before the referendum, we constantly have these reports in the Irish Times about how Ireland was breaking international law, and Ireland wasn't meeting its international human rights 
obligations because of the, the law on abortion in Ireland. All of the UN would announce that we this law had been broken, and that international law, that convention. Yeah, that's really a bunch of you and your mates got together on an afternoon, some you know, nothing else to do in Copenhagen, and make up made up a list of stuff, isn't it? That's kind of how states have acted, and now we'll make it a legally binding principle. And the states kind of go, fine, we're doing it anyway. But at the moment a state goes, you know what, no. You're kind of out of road there, lads. And you know, <laughs> if, you, if, you want, if you want to see the, the practical example of that, look at the history of the League of Nations. Mm. You know, and the enormously effective way that it managed to treat Japan, Italy, and Germany when it felt that they weren't really behaving themselves according to the laws uh, the New World Order. So anyway, reversing quickly. Santa is a good kind of lie that builds good social things, and human rights are a terrible kind of lie that only end in madness. And this all started with people being let out of prison for burglary. Absolutely. So the government announced, uh, well, didn't announce, did it quite quietly. Yeah. Whispered. <laughs> the government whispered. <laughs> that it would be letting out non-violent offenders. Um, it let out 590, sorry, 529 of them last week. And in a move that I think we can all agree, not even the Oracle of Delphi could have foreseen happening, Michael. It now looks like there's been a, a spate of burglaries of pubs. And um, over the weekend, and uh, many of the people suspected of taking part are uh, thought to be the people who were released on Friday. I'm 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 shocked. I'm shocked and stunned. I'm shocked and horrified to discover gambling is going on in this institution. I'm who could have who could decent ordinary criminals work? You know, decent ordinary working class lads from great working class communities. Blah blah blah. And are you sure, Gary, that this is actually this isn't being pinned on them? But actually, what we have here is a bunch of marauding vandals coming up from Galini. and I, you know, I, th- I think Michael, we may be. This may just be that you know there was a spate of robberies uh, immediately afterwards, and people went. Perhaps that's the five to six hundred uh, thieves and burglars. Well, we were Gary, you know perfectly what that kind of reasoning is. I think that's is. the view of a pessimist, Michael. That's the kind of reasoning which is called post hoc propter hoc, because something happened after something else. It was caused by it. You were saying. We let out six hundred burglars and criminals, and then suddenly there's a space of crime, and I, and somehow they are connected. There's no actual logical reason to believe I mean, that this is the there's case. There's no reason why releasing five to six hundred people who have a proven disregard for social norms and a willingness to engage in criminal activity immediately during a pandemic, when we need strong social cohesion to stop people going out and have introduced a lot of vulnerabilities in different locations because people can't go to them. Uh, be cynical to assume that those people would take advantage of that. Well, no, there's an interesting... Particularly when released en masse. There's an interesting question. One of the, uh, I wonder if it still is the case, so one of those bits of old law stuck in, that it has always been the case, you, you, after the, the reading of the Riot Act, uh, which actually would take place at some, sometime in the old days, they would actually read the Riot Act to a group of foregathered people. One of the rights that you that well rights that it was traditionally uh, considered to be licit that to shoot looters. This is a good sensible policy. Now, if we are metaphorically, Gary, if you see where I'm going here, to consider that we are in a sense at war. 
you, could you say that people acting in this kind of way, going to the empty pubs, knowing they're empty because of the uh, the bomb, which is the virus which has gone off in our economy, has left them in this position? Maybe we could say that these people are looters. Or saboteurs. And that, and, or, and or saboteurs. And therefore, the guards could shoot them. I mean, I, I think... Garda resources are very strained at this point, so I think I think that would be a difficult sell. Uh, owners could perhaps shoot them and then send a note to the guards telling them that they'd been shot. Cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just efficient. I think it would be important that they keep the government informed and stuff. You know, they... absolutely. We couldn't have order breakdown. No, no, we don't. Want um, that. Not like in Philadelphia, Gary. Philadelphia, where the police announced they would no longer be arresting people for. Non-violent crimes, which include burglary, theft, auto theft, uh, prostitution, and uh, drug use. And not only did they decide they were going to do this, but they sent out a press release. (laughs) Now, Michael, I'm not. I've never worked in the security field. I know a fair bit of people who do, about police and military, but I've never worked in it. But I would have thought that that would be the sort of thing that you don't send out a press release on, even if you're going to do it. It seems just because criminals, yes, Michael. Yeah. You see, do you think are that generally literate and may read it? Even, even in Philadelphia. Even in Philadelphia, which, if you've never been, is awful. Well, they have um... crack and people who have shops that sell angel rocks. Isn't this the centre of Philadelphia? Is sort of oldy American Yankee stuff, isn't it? It is, yeah. But I, I stay in an Airbnb a bit outside the centre. And they have in the uh, in the urban decay part of it. Well, industrial decay actually. They have the uh, the, the steps were rocky. Always to go up and down. Yeah, I, I I don't get the I don't get the press release. I genuinely, I mean, I suppose the problem is if you're a police service, you're doing this. If it's established as a policy and you don't tell the press, and then the press find out. Well, the the police the police union in Philadelphia came out in support of it and said it was done to protect the health of officers. But I particularly like what they're doing. Yeah. So they, if they find you committing one of these crimes, like burglary, they will take you down to the station. They will take all of your uh, information uh-huh. so you can be identified. Right. And then they'll let you leave. And then at a later date, they'll put out an arrest warrant for you and come back and arrest you. Right. But, uh, hmm. so what's the, where in this, is it that they don't want to be, they don't want people to be held in cells or in detain, detained? Is that the issue? Or that, they say it's for the it's for the safety of officers. But if the safety, that means. if the safety of officers, I would have thought that trying to arrest somebody, subdue them, and bring them to the down to the uh, to the cop shop would have been you've already sort of that boat has sailed. I don't see that uh, once you get them there. I mean, haven't you done the biggest bit of the whole thing? Or am I am I missing something here in Philadelphia? I, I don't. I also as I, I I assume they assume that people were eventually going to find out about this, and maybe this is why they had to tell them. But somehow it seems a a press release. It also seems like an invitation to a party, does it not? I mean, it, there's a scene in Family Guy, mm-hmm. um, in which one of them holds up a newspaper and goes, "Peter, do you know what this is?" And he looks at it and goes, "Movable type." We've got to hide it from the serfs, let they realise they can produce it and attain literacy. <laughs> and I don't know why, but this kind of reminds me of that. There's just a sort of, well, surely no criminal could read a newspaper that might carry 
this press release? You know, the funny thing is that the very first kind, the most basic kind of movable type, was invented in China. Uh, but the real breakthrough was when we went into the full-scale individual letters rather than sort of block ideograms, which in Europe. And yet, Gary, here's how's this for a segue? We don't call it Chinese type, nor do we call it German type. We see the problem here, Michael, is there's two segues. The path divulged in a, in a forest, and should we take the one less travelled? <laughs> Let's take the one that leads us to Donald Trump. Okay, because I was going to take the one that led us to Paddy Cosgrave. Oh, either are. Both are rich sources of comedy. Oh, the Paddy Cosgrave Twitter tweet. Oh, I had forgotten that. Oh, Those are a couple. So Paddy Cosgrave, for those who don't know, is an event organiser. He organised the Web Summit, which, to put in context, is an international tech conference which Paddy once managed to run without Wi-Fi. So like that's Paddy Cosgrave in a box <laughs> with a bow on it for you. Yeah. And Paddy has been going mental on the Irish government pretty much since the COVID-19 thing started. But what I found really interesting is that um, he's, he's attacking the Irish government on this. And at the same time, the Chinese government is fighting effectively an international PR war to blame other people for the outbreak, to minimise the fact that the Chinese government in many ways is directly responsible for the deaths of thousands of people because it hid the research or hid any information on the virus, told the World Health Organization that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission, Yeah, and then held a, I believe, 40,000-person festival in Wuhan when they knew it was contagious. And then, let's face it, may well have killed the doctor that identified it. Yeah, he, he died of coronavirus. Uh, very young, though. Unusual to die of something like that. But, you know, these things happen. Is it, but it, now, once upon a time, when he said he might have died of lead poisoning. Yes, or, you know, uranium. Yeah. Anyway. But here's here's the thing. The Web Summit is now pumping out tweets uh, on Twitter. That's usually where tweets go. That they're promoting. They're putting money behind to send to people. And those posts are about China donating items to Ireland. How brilliant is China? Yeah. But here's a great one. The Web Summit, the, the tweet that they sent out was from uh, Wang Yi, who is the um, foreign minister of China about how he'd sent a message to Mr. Simon Coveney. Now, Michael, I want you to read this. Yes. And tell me, does this come from the Web Summit or the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs? Uh-huh. Just guess. Okay. okay. <clears throat> China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, has this evening sent a profound message of solidarity and friendship to Ireland's Thánaiste and Minister of Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, and the Irish people. That's Pravda. Whatever. That's message, a profound message of solidarity and friendship. Yeah, that's definitely whatever the whatever the the peaking version of of Prava, Pravda is. That's uh, I love. Yeah, that's Paddy. I imagine that's that's a promoted tweet from the Web Summit that reads like it's written by the Communist Party, and now he's after putting up a Facebook post, which is why is Ireland ignoring China's offer of help to fight COVID nineteen, which is again about the great work of Wang Yi, uh, China's foreign minister. Yeah, I saw I saw a tweet that was talking about the amount, the incredible work that China was doing across the world, sending doctors, scientists, experts, and technology all around the world. Uh, and this is really what this is what true solidarity looks like. And you know, Michael, I I I must admit I have the heart of a cynic because I saw that and I I saw the words profound message of solidarity and friendship, and my heart was not filled 
with uh, recognition of that solidarity and friendship, but more of a query about what financial ties the Chinese government may have to Paddy Cosgrave and the Web Summit. Questions <laughs> that I have no answers to, and there may in fact be none. But I take it as a general rule that businesses don't say things like profound message of solidarity and friendship from the Chinese government, unless the Chinese government is kind of involved. Well, you could say that, Gary. I couldn't possibly comment. But you could. Well, I could. I mean... It just makes you more likely to be sued. And i deeply concerned. Actually, do you know what? No, I don't want to go to the High Court this uh, right now. Well, Paddy, Paddy Cosgrave won't sue you. He'll just insult you on Twitter and then go on a rant about something he is vaguely informed about. That would be very hurtful and were I to read it. And would probably keep me up at nights uh, were I to go to bed. So I'd, I'd want to avoid that kind of eventuality. Does Paddy have any connections with Huawei? I mean, they're our tech company. Or, here's the thing, he's got his little deal with the Portuguese government to host the Web Summit there. I wonder if he's considering moving it to China at any point. Well, he has been in Lisbon for a while. So, I mean... Because they apparently have Wi-Fi in Lisbon, and we don't have it in Dublin. Because it's a, it's a weird thing for the Web Summit, not only to write a tweet like that, but to promote it. To put money behind it so that other people see it. Because it's not really relevant to their... Um, should we say business interests? Yeah, it's also the language. Unless it is. The language is just odd for a, a, a modern tech company. It, it, it really does read like something written by the press office of the... Of the it of the, reads like it was written by a foreign ministry. Yeah, like the pre, a press office in a communist country. Like if a person said that to you in person, you'd assume that the Chinese government had his children. <laughs> As it was in possession of them rather than creating them, yes, uh, I would indeed assume this. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. However, but yes, Donald Trump. However, it, it, it's somewhat the same thing. Well, it's now it's it's the reaction and it's the reaction of the American left and the American media to Donald and his capacity to make them basically to make them dance like chickens on a on a, on a heated plate. Incredible. He is incredible at diverting his opponents to just nonsense. So he starts so, this deal. Let's face it, Gary, I, he's rather dismissive of the whole thing. It's all going to be over by summer anyway. And listen, we're going to have tremendous drugs, and we're going to be brilliant. And, you know, a lot of it's just hysteria and nonsense and blah, blah. And then, really, this this is the line that is the dominant line among, for him and his supporters. Until Tucker Carlson basically blows the gaff. Tucker Carlson comes on, gives a piece to camera, goes down and talks to him. Now we're taking it all seriously. Before that, the Democrats et al. were criticizing. They were talking about testing and preparedness and controls and border checks and all the usual things. What did Donald do? What was Donald's response to, or what has been? What is Donald's response politically to this, Gary? So, yeah, so he's he's getting beaten because his response to the COVID-19 crisis was not great. It was a bit all over the place. The CDC couldn't get tests out. There were not enough of anything. There were people saying that this... I saw people who deeply supported Trump saying that this was a shambles. And Donald Trump comes out and he says, well, you know, we're going to have to treat the Chinese virus more seriously. <laughs> and on a fucking... Dime, the American media stops talking about the shambolic rollout, anything of that nature, and decides instead 
that's racist. Let's talk about how that is racist. Not the things that he's actually not done as well as he should and people might care about. But let's do that and let's refer to all of his administration who use it as racist. And let's talk about that and only that. You know, you you get to a point where you have to ask, how self-aware is the American left? Because he has, he just, this is what he does. They get something, they get a hold of something substantial, something real, something to beat up Donald with. And then what does Donald do? He pulls a hanky out of his pocket and waves it over it. Look at my hanky, look at the hanky. Don't look at me, look at the hanky, look at the red hanky. Ooh, look at the hanky. And they're sitting there like children, mesmerised. He knows what, he knows perfectly well. I mean, he may even have some plants in the media out there to stir it up at the beginning in case they don't hear it. Because of the Chinese virus, and now the only thing they care about is whether or not it's racist to call it the Chinese virus. And it's, it's his, his ability to do this is incredible. But their inability to not take the base is, in, is even more incredible. It's not subtle. I mean, it's not surprising. This is what he does. I did, I think my personal favourite was there was a reporter, an Asian-American reporter, and she says she was talking to one of the administration officials about this, mm. unnamed, of course. Yes. And he referred to it as the Kung Flu. Which is very, which is not bad, you know. Not bad. Yeah. And then she said, and the fact he would say that to me publicly made me think what else he calls it in private. <laughs> and you sort of go, I think you've lost your fucking mind, frankly. <laughs> What what else would he call it in private? Well, this is the new range of ethnic slurs for a fucking virus. What is, they, what is precisely their concern that that people are going to be offensive about the virus? That the virus will be triggered, traumatized? I mean, if it was if it was only that easy, Gary, we could all we could get a bunch of sarcastic people in from Monaghan to make horrible comments about. The virus to people who in intensive care units. It would leave. It would just just go. Oh, you're being horrible. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm going back to China where people are decent to each other. I mean, just, did you repeat that line? What does he say? Also, I think it's interesting. Obviously, implicit in the reporter's comment is the fact that she is aware of herself as as an Asian American reporter, right? And that she assumes that he looks at her and his first response to her as a human being is not that she, he, he is talking to a reporter or, the, or a human being or a woman or whatever, but rather he is talking to her as an Asian person. And in some sense that she and the virus have some kind of shared heritage is the notion here, that they have something in common. And they're both from Wuhan. It's, I, it's, it is a weird, weird way of looking at the world. But they're doing it's, it. And Donald will be able to come in November. He'll have This will have been so played out and so much part of the music that come November, if the art, well, not if, the arts has fallen out of the stock market, job losses will inevitably come and they will come strong and fast. The economy will be looking absolutely fucked over. And Donald will be able to say it was the fault of the Chinese virus. Wink, wink, you know what I mean. And haven't I been talking about... And it feeds into the narrative, doesn't it? Because he's been talking about the Chinese for ages. All he'll say is, well, I wanted a travel ban. Yeah, yeah, I wanted a travel ban. You wouldn't let me. He said I was racist, but I wanted a travel ban. I think my my personal favourite piece of this news is the news that Mexico is thinking of building 
fencing and things along the border to America to stop um, any sort of uncontrolled movement between the two of them, because that could spread infection. And if that happens, Donald Trump will be able to legitimately stand up and say, <laughs> well, I got a wall and Mexico paid for it. Yeah. He, he has an incredible ability to just say something that the American media pivots on and just go, well, that's outrageous. Ignore whatever we were just talking about, but that thing is outrageous. <laughs> and they keep doing it. And they can't seem to help themselves. No, it's, it's like... It's a, I wonder if they know that they shouldn't. It's a Pavlovian thing. It's... The, he rings the bell and they just start to... Some of them do. Some of them definitely do. Because I've read articles about written by sort of more sensible centrist people saying, lads, lads, oh, please, could we not react just to this? Could we keep our eye on the ball? Because now all they are is a bunch of people talking. The American people thinks the Democrats, instead of talking about jobs and factories and workers and sick pay, like things like sick pay rights and health care and the fact that people have to pay for their tests and rich people don't. That surely, I would have thought, in the, in this year, would have been a very rich vein for people like Joe Biden to, and his mates to mine. I mean, it's great, some great opportunities. No, 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 no. We won't be doing that. We'll be talking about... What do you think? Do you think every time this happens, like they've got something on him and then he just diverts them? Like a couple of weeks afterwards, they're just sitting there in a bar and the eyes widen and there's just a sort of, Son of a bitch did it again. I think it's a demonstration of the fact that human beings are incapable of learning. They can, we, can, we, we can accumulate information and facts and record them. But actually, when it comes to learning in the sense of having an experience and changing our behavior, no, we are condemned. Just about managed to remember not to put our hands in the fire. After that, anything more complicated than that? Nah. Or touch your mouth. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how successful we are with that one yet, but there you go. God, I took public transport a week and a half ago, and you never, you never realise how much stuff you touch. Oh yeah, constantly. It's just there, and you just. Mm. When this was getting going, I was uh, perhaps a little bit more aware of it than others. On one, because I had a friend of mine who would ring me constantly with apolo- with uh, absolutely apocalyptic predictions about what was going to come out of China, and because I am, you know, one of the targets. <laughs> I mean, it's target market. Uh, I was more concerned. Uh, I remember saying to people, one of the things we're going to have to do if this happens is we're going to have to give permission for people to be art because people otherwise will die of social embarrassment. When you said you were part of its target market, all I could think of is, um, and I hate people anthropomorphizing uh, viruses and things. Yes. And look, I saw someone on British TV and they were asked, were they social distancing? Have they stopped going to the pub? And they said, no, because if you do that, it wins. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Like, it, oh. it can't. It's it's no conception of winning. Oh, God. It, it, it doesn't have. It's not sapient. Oh. But uh, all I could think of is the virus looking at you going, it's free real estate. <laughs> no, that did win. No, that's awful. That's awful. Yeah. Uh, like someone I know who uh, has had cancer and absolutely goes ballistic. You know when people talk about battling cancer, won the battle, she beat cancer, that kind of thing. It really annoys her because she says, you know, the obvious implication is the people who die are the people who just didn't battle enough. They didn't fight. They just sort of lay down and cancer beats them. Also, I mean, most of the time, the cancer is you. Yeah. 
and like it, it, it is you. So and the people that beating it tend to be the you know, those nice people in St James's or St Vincent's that went away to college for seventeen or eighteen or twenty years. Maybe the problem is that you were too strong and you killed yourself. Yeah, there's a truth to that. There's possibly a truth to that. I don't know. I just kind of said it. Now it's it's out there. It exists. There, it's in the it's ether. It's out there. It's in the ether. Now it can't be called back. What a dangerous world we live in. Uh, it, well, ain't that the truth? Well, we'll be back soon if we can think of anything to say. Oh, and uh, yes, yeah, so we will be back Monday. But I would, I would say to all listeners, if you liked the point about Santa Claus being the right kind of lie and human rights being the wrong kind of lie, you should go read. Terry Pratchett's, um, it's from the Discworld series, and it's death talking about how we all need the small lies to believe in the big lies. And when they ask him about big lies, he's just like, you know, like truth and beauty and those sort of stuffs. Like, they're not lies. Like, oh, really? Where are they then? That's some hard materialism. It's so hard. Yeah, you should go off and read Terry Pratchett anyway. Actually, yeah, because frankly, you either have a lot of time and you may as well fill it with Terry Pratchett. Or you don't have a lot of time, in which case you may as well fill the remaining time with Terry Pratchett. Because he's very funny. He is actually <clears throat> very funny. If you're old enough to remember Douglas Adams and hasn't remembered him, and if you if you don't know who Douglas Adams is, you should also go and read that. Uh, I, uh, I, I actually... Adams is funny, but he, he's a little bit too um, scattershot for me. I don't... To me... Uh, <laughs> I still find certain elements, there's lines from Adams. I'm, I'm very much the generation that grew up with Douglas Adams. And so long as it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for those who are in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, so long as thanks for all the fish, restaurant at the end of the universe, and another one, I can't remember. But there's certain lines that will always live with me. And anybody of my age, uh, you can quote it, and people just will laugh. And we find it very disconcerting that people only a few years younger than us, bang, one of my favourite lines of at the back of any blurb of all time will is the, the the very last one, which I think the last one is so long and thanks for all the fish. I'm not sure. I don't know. I I read them as a as a collected work, and so I actually read. I just love the fact that the fourth it's 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 this big letter says uh, fourth in the fourth book in Douglas Allen's tri- trilogy. Yes, I've seen that. <laughs> I don't know. It just really tickled me. Fourth of the trilogy. I know. Whatever about the the middle of the book, the first line and the last line are both fantastic. What's the first line again? Uh, the first line is about the existence of the universe and how, in retrospect, this has been viewed as a terrible <laughs> mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the last line is... Um, oh, it's God's, God's last message to his... Don't, to, we, to existence. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you, if you don't want to hear this, you just turn off the podcast. Now we are at the end anyway. But uh, they get to the end, they see there's a planet on which God has emblazoned in, in burning letters his final message to creation. And on this and planet, to the you, should, you should point out, on the way to the viewing point, they pass by the angels who wear sky blue robes, Dr. Skull sandals, and, and, and travel by hover scooter everywhere. They're all around. So they're on the way to the end. And these huge mile high, miles high rock message. Yes, in flaming rock, and it just says, uh, "We apologise for the inconvenience." <laughs> and even Marvin, the depressed gray robot, sighs and thinks, "Yes, that's that's it. That's meaningful." <laughs> <laughs> we will see you Monday. Bye bye. <laughs>